As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me is an international man who disliked the international window. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, buddy. How you doing? Hello, Tay-Tay. I did have a wonderful time during the international window, by the way. Uh, I had some really good coffee the other day. Uh, I went a nice walk in the park, <laughs> went to P.F. Chang's a few days ago. It was, it was a really good international break. Very successful. Thank you for asking. I appreciate the complete lack of mention for any sort of soccer. Did you watch games? Uh, I'm assuming maybe there was a little bit of England in there. Or I, I don't really don't know how much you've sworn them off. Uh, I did watch games. Okay. I'm being a little bit facetious about my approach to the international break. I did watch England games. I watched the Iceland game uh, earlier this week. Uh, I watched the, uh, you know, the, the, the Spain Germany game. wasn't that fun, and a few, and, and of course the US games as well. So I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just overly cynical mm-hmm. about this particular international window more yeah. than others. I would say for for reasons previously explained. Which I think is fair. But I, I actually, I, I want to kind of linger on this for a moment because I don't know if you and I have really talked England before. And Daryl, oh God. like Daryl would always say it was 50-50. I think if England were playing the United States, he would lean England. Like, I, I don't know for you, not even like, are you pro USA or pro England, but just like sort of what is your connection to the English national team? Do you care about them all the time, only in big tournaments, sometimes in big tournaments? What would it be for you? I do care about them all the time, and I must confess I do care about them more than the U.S. team, to whom I have an affinity as well, Mm -hmm. obviously, having been a resident here for a decade. Um, But I have always, Taylor, and I don't know how controversial this is, I've always felt that domestic soccer far outweighs international soccer. Mm -hmm. And this comes back to when I used to go and watch Premier League games week in, week out when I had a season ticket, and these players who were playing for opposite teams to my Premier League team who I was, you know, who were enemies, who were villains, who were doing villainous things. And then there's an international break and they change the color of their shirt and I'm supposed to cheer for them. It didn't quite compute with me then. And I know it's a totally different situation and it's, you know, they're representing the country, blah, blah, blah. But I've always found that, you know, domestic soccer is the most most important thing. It's the thing we watch the most of. It's the thing that pays the wages of all the players we watch. It is the lifeblood of the game. So uh, that's not to say I'm completely dismissing the international game. But I like the domestic game 
better. I've, I've talked about this a little bit before about how I think that like, I'll speak for myself and say, as an American Man United fan who has not seen them play in England, like, I think that the rivalries, like, I don't enjoy Liverpool. I don't really enjoy Man City. In terms of, like, my fandom, I enjoy what they do on the field because they play really interesting soccer and it allows us to talk about interesting things on the show. But I don't feel that level of animosity that I'm sure a person born in Manchester, a true Mancunian, feels about Liverpool and vice versa. So then, yeah, you're right that if you're a like hardcore died in the wool Manchester United fan, you're not going to really love Jordan Henderson captaining England or something like that. Whereas I think if yeah. you're an American, I don't know, like Schalke fan, you're not going to be mad if Christian Pulisic is in the, is in the national team when he was playing for Dortmund or Gio Reyna now. Like, do you think that almost gives American fans or American players like a leg up a little bit that there isn't sort of that rivalry? Because I think then it maybe just defaults to like probably Portland fans not loving when Jordan Morris tears <laughs> it up. I feel like that might be the extent of it. I'd say there's less of a conflict. I would agree with that. But also, I also feel this conflict is relatively specific to me because there's not a lot of other fans I know who feel the same way because, you know, when your country plays, particularly in a major tournament, you get behind them. And I do. Don't get me wrong. I get very excited. I was very into the 2018 World Cup and I was actually back in the UK for it. And it was feverish on the streets there. And I can't for for an American who's never been to sort of a European country when that, uh, that European country is competing and going deep in a tournament, it feverish is the only word i can describe it it's all consuming it's all anyone talks about like it, it was weird during that 2018 world cup people didn't say oh hi how are you they'll be like it's coming home yeah it's coming home <laughs> that was the greeting it replaced hi how are you <laughs> it's coming home it's coming home i like it's coming that home. Right. Yeah. yeah it's coming home <laughs> um well i think we can confidently say that football is not yet coming home to the United States until probably the 2022 World Cup. Then they'll win it. Then it comes home. Uh, but until yeah. then, uh, we can talk about other things like some listener questions. But before we even do that, uh, we should note that we have normal club soccer returning. We no longer have the international window. There are some big games this weekend. Uh, Spurs City, Liverpool, Leicester, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona. So Suarez playing his old team, I believe, uh, mm. pending COVID and all those things. You never know anymore with who's, who's fit and who's not. You've also got Napoli hosting top of the table Milan. It's going to be a good weekend, but it's going to be a sort of momentous one for me because I'm turning the show over to someone else for the first time in a very, very long time. Uh, my wife is due this weekend. Even if she does not give birth, I want to kind of be prepared for that to the extent possible, which means I probably don't have like six to seven hours to watch a bunch of games and make a bunch of notes. I'm guessing that would not go over well as she was in active labor. So Ryan is going to be tasting, taking over uh, hosting duties, uh, tastily taking them over, I guess. Uh, Ryan, how are you feeling about taking over on Monday? I'm feeling good. I've had a, an excellent team talk from you, Taylor. I'm feeling confident when I step out on that field. I will leave it all on the proverbial podcast field on Monday. And uh, uh, I hope I'm in. you have placed the show in safe hands. We shall see. I, I believe I have. So it's going to be, do you mind me uh, saying who your guest is going to be? Oh, go on, drop it. It's going to be Graham Ruthven. It's going to be Ryan and Graham uh, doing the weekend review, talking about the big games from the weekend. You all have uh, an existing relationship, right? We do, we do. And I should say that um, Graham's obviously from Scotland, so I'll be providing translation services if and when needed. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Do, do you think you'll do it the same way? Or do you think, will you put your own spin on it? Will you talk about different things than we otherwise would? Depends where the conversation goes, doesn't it? Oh, boy. Let's oh not boy. reveal my biases. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm really excited for that. And I'm very thankful to you and uh, to Joe Lowry, who are going to be doing some shows in my absence. And 
I have nothing but supreme confidence. Uh, but I did talk to – there's no but there. I have nothing but supreme confidence, period. Next paragraph. I did talk to uh, George Qureshi yesterday. Uh, that's been recorded. That will be out tomorrow. But that's us talking about Daryl and our kind of experiences with him. And George has a pretty strong relationship and a pretty lengthy relationship with Daryl. But then we also get into sort of the future of the show, the short-term, long-term future and everything like that. So – if people want to know what's going on and what will be going on, there's more information there, but I'm sure then we'll continue to talk it out as we go because Ryan's going to be hosting some shows. Joe's going to host some shows. Uh, long term, we'll maybe have some other people coming on. We'll do some short, short form stuff, some longer form pre-recorded stuff. It'll be, it'll be a lot of different things, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. But right now, with all that said, I'm very excited for today's listener questions. We've got six of them. Shall we get to them, Ryan? Let's get to them. All right. The first one comes from Chris Smoke. Would David Wagner fix DC United? That's a big question. Um, and I believe came in before Ben Olsen was fired. So now we know that there is a vacancy. Uh, the interim manager is still a candidate, possibly, but they have, I think, a short list of around 20 people, which makes it not a very short list. Long the list. question then becomes, would David Wagner fix DC United? It's an interesting question, and there's a lot going on at DC United. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, they've got the, the coaching search they have, as you say. They've got a training facility being built. They've got, you know, organizational structure that needs to be uh, organized a little bit better, perhaps. They've got front office staff who need to, you know, up their game as security guards, apparently, uh, <laughs> and uh, p- players players who might be coming or going in what is now the off-season for them. So there's a lot of uh, potential change happening in DC. David Wagner is a, is a good question, though. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you have to look at the kind of style of manager he is and, and where he is in his career, perhaps. If you look at where uh, Wagner started, you know, well, we got his start, obviously, in Germany and was Jurgen Klopp's best buddy and uh, worked with him at Borussia Dortmund. But, you know, sort of got his breakthrough, shall we say, uh, in, in, in the championship with Huddersfield. And when he took over there, he did turn that team around. You know, they were just above the relegation zone. Change, a, whole, a wholesale change of style which came in here. And we know kind of what David Wagner's style is about. It's kind of Jurgen Klopp-esque, you know, uh, high energy. We've got the gaming press going on. Exciting to watch. Would you describe DC United style as exciting to watch, Tay-Tay? <laughs> That's my answer to your question. I hope that helps. <laughs> no, I so, would not. They were definitely not fun. Um, I, like... I watch MLS with with Joe and Jordan doing MLS assist. I definitely am watching less MLS because I feel like they're covering it far better than I could. So I'm still watching it intermittently. DC used to be my team that I'd be like, oh, DC's on tonight. I'm going to go watch them. That has not been the case this season. No, it has not been a fun season uh, as a casual fan of that team. Yeah, and that could be said for, you know, fans of Schalke or fans of Huddersfield in the late David well, Wagner period as well, to be fair. Uh, yeah. I, I think to, to answer the question more sincerely, it depends on on the how receptive DC United would be to a wholesale change. When it happened at Huddersfield, it was, you know, the, the change happened and it was good. And, you know, it happened on a very small budget. They got promoted in David Wagner's first full season. That was a team punching above its weight. You know, this is a this is a, a manager we know who know he's man management guy coaches in work ethic if the players are up for it they are up for it and they'll get it done so if he's got open-minded players who will get it done then i think it could potentially be a good fit but you just don't yeah. know 
until it happens, right? No, you don't. And it seems like famous last words, I'm sure as soon as I say this, they're going to hire him tomorrow. It seems like he is <laughs> is not near the top of that somewhat lengthy list. Also on there would be Jill Ellis, although Stephen Goff was reporting her interest is elsewhere. Steve Chirundolo has been in that conversation, but it's been a lot of MLS assistants. Uh, Ezra Hendrickson, Pat Noonan, Gonzalo Pineda, and then Chris Armas, former uh, Red Bulls coach in there as well, to name a few. Like David Wagner, it seems like maybe isn't near the top of it because I think they want somebody who has more MLS experience, has more sort of awareness of the league and what playing in the league requires. But I think this question is really, really fascinating. It's my favorite type of question because you, I think, began your answer by saying like, David Wagner. (sighs) And that is exactly (laughs) how I feel. It's like it's I've gone back and forth on this one a couple different times of and basically I have reasons why I think it could be good and reasons why I think it would not be good and you could really go either way with it for me if you said like I think he will definitely be good I'd be like yeah okay why not and if you said you think he'd be bad I think I agree with you the reasons why I think he'd be good let's start there I think he is he has the kind of style he wants his team to play as you've talked about and I think he is sort of practical in his approach with that in mind. At Schalke, he had the sort of pressing system we've come to expect from him, but then at times he would throw on just two big forwards when he was playing a defense who weren't as good in the air. He would make those sort of pragmatic decisions. That feels like something that would make him very good in MLS, where teams are playing so many games, they don't always have time to kind of completely adjust what they're doing. Uh, so I think he could probably catch some teams, cause some teams problems. Um I, I also think that like just coming into it with a fresh set of eyes, maybe you don't have as much baggage as maybe teams coming into D.C. and and sort of knowing the history there and knowing the pressure there, but also knowing how long Ben Olsen had been there. So maybe a, a fresh face, it would be useful. I think he's accustomed to doing a lot with a little. It's not like Huddersfield have a very big budget. Schalke mm. certainly didn't really have any budget at that point, and I think he brings – at least some immediate name recognition because of his connection to the Premier League and the Bundesliga, uh, also the U.S. national team as well, a former uh, international with the USMNT. So I, I think like those would be positives, but I think there are also some some fairly strong negatives as well. Did you have any other positives we should focus in on? Uh not really, mm-hmm. but I think it's it's interesting to consider, you know, the the, the role of a manager or the concept of a manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's very few other roles where you can stink up the place and still be a viable option for a, another really good job. And obviously, soccer management is one one of those uh, one of those very rare things. So it's it doesn't. He hasn't necessarily blotted his copybook with Schalke, I think is probably the point I'll get. He's had a 30% mm. win rate at Schalke. Uh, ben Olsen, in his time at DC, had a 35% win rate. So, mm. uh, And Wagner's overall win rate in his career is 33.5. So Olsen actually had a higher win rate, which doesn't doesn't necessarily tell you much because, you know, Wagner did a lot of coaching as well. <laughs> but um, <laughs> well, actually, actually to, to jump in there for a moment, I think that that's what I like was alluding to earlier with the idea that maybe teams wouldn't be at quite as adept at figuring him out and that's not a knock against MLS or the coaches it's just that the the kind of grueling nature of the season you're traveling all over the country but then also it's slightly I would say the MLS season is slightly less do or die because in the Bundesliga the Premier League if you lose a game you're dropping points now you're in the relegation zone if you're trying to challenge for the title and you drop points that's a huge issue whereas yeah. right now if 10 of the 14 or whatever are making the playoffs It's less pressure. And so I think that if teams aren't as overly focused on figuring out what his teams do and how to stop them, 
I think he would have more success. I think that's what happened at Schalke and Huddersfield to some extent, is that teams mm-hmm. eventually were like, oh, okay, this is what they're doing, so this is how we play against them. And once that happened, I think he then didn't have that next level, that next step in the evolution, and that's where things really started to come apart. Now, Taylor, in terms of whether it would be a marquee appointment, using that word in mm-hmm. uh, in air quotes, do we read anything into the fact that he was up for the Sheffield Wednesday job recently and Tony Pulis got it instead? Ooh, my stomach does, apparently. <laughs> um, wow, that was quite the noise. Uh, I Yeah, I think you probably have to. I, and now that might be because he has particular salary demands. That might also mm. be because he has particular demands when it comes to control of player acquisition or the players he would want or sort of squad overhaul it might be that they wanted something more kind of straightforward and he wants something more comprehensive so like again in in that with that in mind if that is what he wants and he goes to dc and says here's my vision here's how i want it to go i can operate within your financial constraints then i don't like if anything the sheffield wednesday thing is more like oh they didn't have long-term vision dc united do yeah if the sheffield wednesday one was more like yeah like your resume is fine but like tony pulis knows how to win in the championship and like knows how to play kind of direct ball that isn't going to require a ton of investment we'll go that way then it's a little bit more negative because i think it is sort of looking at him and saying you don't really quite have like what we need and no your name recognition isn't big enough that like you are automatically going to sell some season tickets you're going to get people excited i think well, he would make people more excited here but that's just maybe my perception my opinion i think he would too and having played for the us i think that that carries a lot of weight as well but drawing back to your point there about he may have had sort of certain demands of sheffield wednesday that would worry me because if if Sheffield Wednesday in theory weren't able to meet his demands, what's going to happen when he rolls up to DC United, United the and they mm-hmm. require him to do the 10 p.m. till 4 a.m. shift watching Audi Field? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he looks good in in like the bright yellow security colors that Dortmund sometimes wear. This so I feel true. like we know he can pull that look off. <laughs> yeah, but to your point, like that is one of the negatives. Is I think if he comes in and wants control over players he wants to be able to spend some money it's not that dc have always been hesitant to spend i think they they did a they did what i would say was a good job of bringing in players last season who had mls experience who were sort of veterans or liga mekis veterans matt doyle did a really good season summary on them and that was kind of his argument that it seemed like it would work and then it didn't Mm. so if he then is saying well yeah it didn't work because you brought in a bunch of like plus 30 veterans i want some DP signings a la Lucho Costa and Wayne Rooney, if they look at that and say, like, no, I, we can't do that, then right there you're already sort of starting things off on a negative foot. And so if he wants a higher salary, more control of the players coming in, more money to be spent, even if he does have that name recognition and good ideas, that might be sort of too many big knocks against him. You won't pay me all this money? How dare you? I... I, I... Failed at Huddersfield and Schalke. How dare you not <laughs> well, take my turn? That's, dude, that's the other thing is like it's this is not this is really weird. And this is why I keep going back on it. But like this is not a manager who, you know, took Schalke to the Champions League and then they had a downturn in form when they stopped having investment. He kept mm. Huddersfield in the Premier League for one season. Yes, but then they do go down and he has the successes. It's just they're they tend to be punctuated by negatives, not quite failures, but certainly not positives. And then he's out the door. And when that happens, it then leads to negativity in the locker room. And if you look at Schalke, there's the situation with Nubel versus uh, Schubert and how he sort of like benches one for the other. And I think that leads to some drama. He publicly blames some players and it feels like near the end, the squad were just sort of done with him. Like basically just didn't really want to play for him anymore. 
So coming into Major League Soccer then, here's this guy who's got this experience. He's got really impressive things on his resume. But then there are also these these moments of like, oh, well, you did lose the dressing room if if he's demanding a big salary or a lot of big name players. There would there would be enough, I think, concern there that maybe they give him a second or third interview. But I think those interviews get increasingly tense and pointed in the questioning. Put it that way. Yeah. And, and we have been quite negative about David mm-hmm. Wagner. Let's be fair. You sure. know, he, it was an incredible feat getting them to the Premier League on such yeah. a small budget. I think it's even more incredible that he kept them up in that first season as well. Yeah, you're I not mean, wrong. that that when when the Huddersfield got promoted and we saw them, we were all thinking, "Oh, they're going straight down at the bottom Absolutely. of the table." So that was an incredible achievement. And you know, even look at the first match of this season against Bayern Munich, eight um, nil to Bayern Munich. There's not many teams in the world that Bayern Munich score eight goals against. So he's in a unique club there. So congratulations <laughs> on that too. But see, like you're you're right though. You're right to point out that he keeps Huddersfield up at a time when everybody expected them to finish dead bottom. They they then continue to not invest really at all. That they're not breaking their model of okay, now we've stayed up one year, we're going to sign a bunch of ten, fifteen, twenty million uh, pound players. They sort of stick with it, and then they do get relegated, which was a bit more expected. Schalke have this huge name, and everybody expects like, oh, it's going to be fine. But then there's ownership turnover or like turmoil. There's front office turno- turmoil. And it just does not go well, but I, I think it's you can't really say like it doesn't go well because of him. He is part of it, but he is not mm. the reason. And so there are negatives and there are positives. And to some extent in my mind, they can easily cancel each other out. Uh, and and that leaves you with like, d- does he fit the bill of what DC United want? And I have a feeling that right now he does not, which is a strange thing to say uh, about a person who has his resume. But I think they're looking for people who know how MLS works, can function maybe without a ton of money, uh, both for themselves and for the team, but still find a way to win, find a way to be competitive in the league. I think if they sign David Wagner, that does mean to me that they are then going to splash cash. They are going to financially back him. You wouldn't bring him in and then not back him. So if they do, I think he could very well fix DC. I think he could turn them around. But I think if they don't hire him, then we have the answer of no, they didn't think he could. So Chris Smoke, we don't know, I think is the answer <laughs> we're giving there. But I, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always inclined to do, go the try something new route, I think, mm-hmm. in, in circumstances like this. I, 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 I like to roll the dice in these situations, but hey, I don't GM a soccer team, so what do I know? <laughs> well, we'll find out. Maybe, maybe you'll get that job, Ryan. We'll see. We'll see how the Monday review goes. If it goes really well, I have heard that doing a good weekend review can get you a GM job. Oh, sweet. <laughs> uh, but until then, Patrick Delaney with the next question. How good would Mitrovic be if he didn't spend the last few seasons playing for Newcastle and Fulham and instead play for a team with more quality? Hmm. This is an interesting debate. I think this is a debate which has sort of floated around a little bit before. The The idea of can any player be better if he's in a better team? Does the rising tide lift all boats? Is that yeah. essentially what we're asking here? I think so. I think it yeah. is. And, and I think a good example of that would be, at least right now, currently, as we record, the kind of present thinking around Weston McKinney, that mm. playing for the U.S. these last two games, he looked much more comfortable. He looked more confident, uh, at least to me. And, and I do kind of buy into the idea that playing with Juve, where there's much more emphasis on tactics and, and technique, I think that has helped his game a lot. If he were still at Schalke, he's going to be starting every single game. He's not starting every single game at Juve. But... 
he's doing a bunch of different stuff. He's being asked to play here and then there and then change it up at halftime. And, and that chaos, I think, can have a negative effect. So he would be maybe an example of what Patrick is then asking about with Mitrovic of would Mitrovic playing for Barcelona or even like Leicester, some, somebody who's just a bit more consistent, would that make him a better player? Yeah, I'm not. I think it's a case by case basis because this this question made me think of someone like Ricky Lambert going mm-hmm. to Liverpool. I mean, he's gonna he's gonna have more opportunities, and a striker is going to have more opportunities in a better team because by definition they're probably going to get better service, aren't they? And yeah, Liverpool, Danny Ings as well. Yeah, yeah, Danny Ings as well. Another good example of these sort of players who you'd expect to get better service and to raise their games, which I suppose you could argue they did. And if you looked at it the other way around, Tate, what if Erling Haaland? switched his Gills and Kirken um, loyalties and he was at Schalke instead. Oh boy. I don't think he'd be as good because he wouldn't have the support that he does currently with Dortmund. So it kind of works both ways, doesn't it? I, I agree with you. I, I think, and, and I think for Mitrovic specifically, what I did is I watched um, footage of him playing for Serbia, uh, who it's not like, you know, they're, they're not the best team in the world, but I wanted to see how he's utilized for his national team. And it's pretty similar to the way he's been utilized for Fulham. He is the target number nine. He's going to be the one who, if you need an outlet, you play it long to him. He's going to hold it up. He's very clever on the ball. He, there's lots of megs and there is some trickery in there, but it's holding it up back to goal, laying it off, then making those runs and then obviously being very good in the air. And that's what he does for, for Serbia. That's also what he does for Fulham. I kind of back your idea that if he goes to a larger team, are they going to adjust what they do to suit Alexander Mitrovic, or are they going to expect him to fit what they do? I think it's probably the second one. Whereas Fulham, he has the name recognition, but is so talented and such a capable goal scorer that any manager, even when they have the turnover, I think is going to try to find a way to play into his strengths and not ask him to play into their system. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And Mitrovic, maybe uh, you could argue he's found his level with a team, the the kind of teams he has played for. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's harsh. But what I mean is, if he was to go and play for Liverpool, for example, you know, he's not going to, a guy who's great in the air, who's, you know, has his attributes, won't necessarily be the best person for that role. Chelsea, maybe he could be a go to Chelsea and be that Oli Giroud kind of character. That's That's possible. That's That's a good argument. But not all, not all teams he would fit into. And that that concept of finding your level, Taylor, I also it made me think of Roberto Soldado, who <laughs> was great at Valencia and you know started his career at Real Madrid. Come came to Tottenham and it just didn't work out. It, you know, obviously didn't work out for him. And you know, it was not too bad when he moved on to like Villarreal and wherever he ended up after that. But you know, it was kind of almost as if he'd found his level at the mid mid tableish Spanish team. And I'm I'm. You know, I sound like I'm being mean about Spanish soccer here at the moment. I'm not. I'm saying that he d- didn't quite mm-hmm. cut it when it came to you know coming up to up to Tottenham, and you could argue he didn't quite cut it either when he start was in the Real Madrid senior team as well. So it's about finding the right balance and finding the right team that suits a player's attributes, and I think that's particularly relevant for a, for a number nine. That's a really good answer because, like, to 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 connect Mitrovic and Weston McKenney, I, I would say like because I think the easy argument would be like, well, yeah, but you, like by your argument, McKenney doing a bunch of different stuff at a bad team goes to a better team and suddenly raises his game. Why wouldn't Mitrovic be able to do the same thing? Mm-hmm. And I think you're absolutely right that with certain teams he would uh, because with McKenney, I think it was like, well, he could play here, he could be a right wing back, I guess, but he could be a holding midfielder, he could be a number ten, and I think that variety, like 
helps but hurts at the same time. He goes to Juve. They're asking him to do very specific things. He can then focus in on those very specific things. I think if a team wanted Alexander Mitrovic to do what he does for Fulham, and I think you're right, like Chelsea does make a lot of sense to me. Like get on the end of some crosses, hold up the play, like drop into space if that's what we need. But it's a lot of like be the physical man leading the line, stretching the defense, causing problems. Yeah, that probably does suit him. So I think you're right then that I don't think he would be – like a Ballon d'Or winner. I don't think he's he's a next-level striker, even if he does go to a, a better team, but I think he probably does up his game a little bit just because if that team is doing what already benefits him but has players around him who can facilitate that all the more, then yeah, I think he's probably going to look better as a result. I think we had a better answer to Patrick Laney's question than Chris Moak's question there. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> so we're saying that it depends, but if he went to a team that played into his strengths, then yes, he probably would be a better player. How good would he be, though? When you've summarized it, we actually had the same answer, didn't we? It was a maybe again. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, though? Like, would he be... Like, he wouldn't be, like, leading for the Golden Boot or something like that, right? Like, if he no, goes to Chelsea, so. but he's just he's just a... He's probably... And also, because he's playing for a bigger club, he there is instantly a, a slight bit more intimidation to him for opposition if it's alexander mitrovic of chelsea versus alexander mitrovic of a fulham team that are bottom of the table not currently but like the the initial fulham team um it probably does have a little bit more of an impact there too definitely yeah he's gonna have more of a spotlight at chelsea he's gonna have probably more opportunities better service and it's the same thing as you know if leo messi played at levante or whatever (laughs) um he's not gonna quite get the spotlight he's not gonna get those uh, those ballon d'ors if he's you know not not getting what he needs from his teammates This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. I would agree, but if... They did want to change clubs. If anybody wants to to move uh, jobs, then today's sponsor is there for them because this episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by LinkedIn. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 706 million members worldwide. Getting started is easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. You can do it right from your mobile device so you don't have to log into a big desktop if you don't want to. Ryan, I know that you are a fan of LinkedIn. Uh, What is it? If you were going to say like one thing that you particularly enjoy from a user perspective, Tate, mm-hmm. I think it's the best place to go if you are looking for a job. If you go to LinkedIn.com slash jobs, you can take a look, particularly if you have a LinkedIn profile already, which probably most of us do. Um, and it tailors jobs to your specific uh, qualities, to your attributes and to your location. So I find it the most uh, easy to use. And I think it's one of the most prolific um, job searching sites out there as well. Uh, and you can identify strong candidates if you are seeking to place a job. You can identify strong candidates with their efficient rating system to help you quickly get your job in front of more qualified candidates. And you can do this all from your mobile device, no matter where the day takes you. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster that's i think i think i didn't really fully appreciate is how good they are when a company is trying to hire because i've only ever seen it from my perspective of looking for jobs hoping i can find something having to re-input my resume every single time number one you do not have to do that with linkedin which is very much appreciated as ryan already said but number two yeah from a hiring standpoint making it really easy making it efficient simplifying the process so that you don't have all the 
the hoops for everyone to jump through, either your applicant or yourself, that's always going to be a positive. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash soccer. Again, that's linkedin.com slash soccer to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions do, of course, apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring this episode. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Thank you very much to Credible for sponsoring this episode. Credible.com is an online marketplace that allows borrowers with student loan debt to see refinancing rates across a variety of lenders. Uh, Ryan, like pausing this one for a moment, I'm assuming that you uh, you did not go to school in the United States, correct? I did not go to school in the United States, correct. But I also had student loan debt from where I did attend school. Ah, uh, see, th- that was going to be my question. Forgetting that, yes, Daryl also had student loan debt. So I'm, I'm now aware that it does not just seem to be a U.S. problem when it comes to loan debt. Is that fair to say? No, it's not. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a global uh, concern, I would say. Maybe it's handled a little differently in the UK. I think uh, interest rates may be a little bit more favorable and it's all government control. But let's not get into that debate because we're talking about Credible.com, Tay-Tay. Because if you've got student loan debt, you could benefit from using Credible.com. With a lower rate, you could save on interest or lower your monthly payment, which means more dollars in your pocket. You can get yeah. debt-free faster. You can consolidate all your student loan bills into one place which gives you ergo henceforth serious peace of mind credible customers have given awesome reviews about how much their financial lives have been after refinancing to your point about like 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 the government being more involved or or helping you get better rates i think that's why services like credible are so important because here where you Mm -hmm. don't have that as much like it tends to be sort of figured out for yourself good luck and i think any company that can make the process more manageable less intimidating and ideally save you money is always going to be a positive but there are more benefits of using credible you can refinance your student loans uh to see actual pre-qualified rates from multiple lenders whereas with some online marketplaces you'll get ranges of rates or ballpark estimates and it only takes a couple of minutes to check rates and checking rates does not impact your credit, emphasizing that one because it's important. They're so confident that they have the best rates, they'll give you $200 if you close a loan with a better rate elsewhere. They will also never sell your data, so you won't receive spam and phone calls from dozens of lenders. Here's what you got to do. Visit Credible.com slash TSS. That's Credible.com slash TSS. C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash TSS. And when you refinance your student loans via Credible, they'll give you a $200 gift card. Fill in a few pieces of info to check what rates you are eligible for. Again, that's Credible.com slash TSS. Refinance your student loans and start saving. Message from Credible Operations Inc. Not available in all states. Terms and conditions apply. Visit visit Credible.com slash TSS for details. I nearly did it quickly. It's really hard. It's really hard to do it fast. Uh, But thank you very much to Credible for sponsoring today's episode of the Total Soccer Show. Uh, I should clarify for you, Ryan, that uh, the Richmond Kickers announcer, this is a very weird thing to clarify, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, The Richmond Kickers stadium announcer, since I was a child, uh, I I think they started having dot-com websites when I was a child, but he would always really hit that dot-com with a like, dot-com. 
That was his favorite thing. So every time you do that, I immediately think of that and immediately start laughing. That's why I laugh whenever Ryan does that for people who might be curious. So please keep reminding me of Stadium Announcers, Ryan, and please keep helping me answer some listener questions. Do you want to ask the next one or do you want to answer the next one? It would be my honor and privilege to ask the next <laughs> right. question for you, Tater. This, mm-hmm. this one comes from Kenneth Seden. Uh, with the current expanded benches for many leagues, why aren't all teams using all the spots, even if it's academy players? Mm-hmm. Thoughts? I have thoughts. Uh, I think I have thoughts, at least. Um, we should, uh, a bit of background, I think this connects to the idea that I believe now every league in Europe, except for the Premier League, uh, has the expanded five substitutes rule, which means a lot of teams have expanded the number of players you can have on the bench. I think the Bundesliga maybe is still only at nine. The Premier League is at seven. Serie A and La Liga would be 12. Uh, And so that's part of it, I think, is that with more subs, you have more opportunities. The question then becomes, why wouldn't you want to fill out all 12 spots if you can because there are games you'll see where Barcelona will have 12 subs or 10 subs and I don't know Levante will have eight so the question is why wouldn't you want to fill that out and I think I have a couple answers my first one would be essentially that like players coming up want to feel like there's a reason for their development for why they're being called in and so if you're a youngster who's been in the academy and suddenly your coach says to you, like, you're going to be in the squad this weekend. That is a sort of, in my mind, a momentous thing. It means that you are now, like, in consideration. You've you've moved to that next level. And I think there is then an idea that, like, unless the coach says, like, yeah, it's just a one-off thing, you're kind of going to be in and around that conversation. So if you're bringing up four academy players because, hey, why not fill it out and see what happens, and then sending them back down or not using them again, I think it sends mixed messages and doesn't convey the idea that there's a plan for development in place. So that's one possible answer. What do you think of that, Ryan? I think that's pretty much along the lines of what I was thinking, okay. Tete. And it brought me back to, do you remember a couple of seasons ago, uh, Pep Guardiola, there was a game against Burnley where mm-hmm. he only named six subs of an available seven. And there was this outrage that he'd left a space on the bench because it was like, no one's ever done this before. Why has he done this? And they was asked this after the game and his response was, I don't have any more players to fill it. Mm-hmm. And then people were think, saying like, oh, you do. You've got the whole academy. You've got, you know, all the reserves, blah, blah, blah. But You have to think about where Pep's coming from. Why should he bring up a player, say, from the academy if he's got no intention of using them in the game anyway? Why bring them up for the sake of it? Because you think about the jump, like, say, at City, the and, and I think at most most teams, the academy and the, the, the reserve players, they don't train at all with the first team. They don't see them. They're on, like, a different part of the complex. Yeah. So to be brought over to the other side, across the fence, so to speak, for a game for the sake of sitting on a bench in a game where your manager hasn't watched you train, really. You're not working regularly with the first team group. You're not going to be used. So there's really not much use in putting putting your butt on that seat for the sake of it. And maybe psychologically, it doesn't do you much good even to be sitting on that bench for the sake of it. And at this time when, you know, there's a lot of injuries going on, there's a lot of fixtures happening, there's COVID, which is affecting squads as well. I think it's perfectly reasonable that some teams uh, are naming fewer players to their benches. And I looked at, for example, I was looking for some examples of this in Lazio against Juventus, the most recent Serie A game. Um, Lazio had a full bench of 12, whereas uh, Juve only named eight players 
to their bench. And, you know, they're only going to use three substitutes in the end. And, you know, Andrea Pirlo... They can use five, but yeah, I take your point. So, sorry, excuse, excuse me, they can use five. You're only, but he did only use three in the end. Uh, Andrea they Pirlo keep doing that. That's the other question I have, but we'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> yeah, uh, but he probably... Maybe I'm misspeaking, but he probably knows what he do, he's doing there, does Pirlo, and he probably yeah. knows he's not going to use an extra an extra four or five bodies on the bench uh, if he doesn't need them. I was actually... I actually looked up this game because I expected Lazio to have fewer on the bench, but it was the other way around. Funny that. <laughs> Yeah, right. I think because that's been the <laughs> argument against it is like bigger clubs will take advantage because they have more money and more depth. Maybe not always the case. But yeah, I, I, like I also to to you to your point in there that like sitting on the bench doesn't necessarily do much for that player. You're right that if they're not training with the first team and if they're not kind of getting those reps to then help them raise their game, then just being called in to sit on the bench to some extent is just. I don't know, a waste of a weekend day. Like, I'm sure it's cool to get to be there and experience it, albeit behind closed doors. So you don't even get into the atmosphere so much, but it's not, it's not like, like, uh, I think where I would like be a little bit more in, I, I think, Kenneth's side of like, why aren't they doing this? Is like, why aren't they using all five subs instead of why are they just using three? That's where I get a bit more confused. Cause that is like, you have an opportunity to give people a debut or rest some legs or get people experimenting in different positions. I don't quite know why you wouldn't take that. But to the very initial point of like Pep Guardiola, if you know, I've only got three subs. It's probably going to be like, this guy gets tired. This guy's going to need a replacement at some point. We always want to kind of have a couple different options in case somebody picks up a card and we can't deal with it. Like, you're you're not then, unless you have watched a player, decided this player is close enough that we could use them, uh, it doesn't really make sense to have a bunch of, of players in there if you know that they're not going to get minutes. If anything, you're just sort of bringing in more people, crowding the bench a little bit, and I don't know if it has as much of a positive impact as it might seem. So I think it's probably better just to go to the like reserve games to make sure yeah. you show up for a few of those, to make sure you're there for training, to see what's going on. That probably has an even bigger impact, in my opinion. Yeah, I'd say so. Now, if I could speak for a second to your point about why not use all your five subs and just use three, can I mm -hmm. posit a couple of theories for that? Yeah, please, please. Uh, say for, for Andre Pirlo, for example, making just three subs when he's got, uh, you know, he, he can use five. Is it is there an element of he's been playing for 4,500 years and that's the way it's always been and he doesn't want to reinvent the wheel too much? I think there's an element of, you know, this is a, a new wacky thing, yeah. being able to have another two subs. And it sort of goes against convention a little bit. But also... If you make five subs in a game, that's 50% of your outfield team that is changing. That's a pretty big wholesale change, yeah. and that has the potential to destabilize more than three subs, I would argue. So you could there could be a school of thought as, yes, you're giving people rest, but you're also destabilizing your team structure more than necessary. Yeah, all right. That makes sense. So I feel like we've provided some answers. Do you feel like we've provided some answers? Feel good about that one. All right. Then I hope you feel good about the next one. Uh, Ian Doton, uh, or Doton, says, with the ease of hearing all of the chatter amongst the players without crowds, so in stadiums where you don't have crowds, you can hear everything much more clearly, why do goalkeepers yell away with every corner? Is there another command they could give the defense other than get the ball out of the penalty area, which seems like an implied desired result? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. I think if you want to talk about why they say away, first of all. So the goalkeeper, say in a corner situation or a free kick, incoming swinging free kick situation, their duty is to communicate. Well, the goalkeeper's job is always to communicate. You mm -hmm. want a loud goalkeeper. You want someone who, who, uh, who's letting the players uh, you know, know what's happening because he's got the best, arguably got the best view of what's going on out on the field. So a keeper, when a ball's coming in for a corner, he's going to say two things. He's going to say, keepers or shout it yep. more enthusiastically than that, which lets his defense know 
don't go for it. I've got this under control. Don't jump for it and jeopardize my chance of catching this ball. So he either says keepers, or mm. if the goalkeeper knows the ball is not within his grasp, it's away. And that's right. a signal to his defenders to say, get it away. Yep. So it's, it's quite simple. He has to do one or the other. So that's why it's not just that they're shouting away as a knee-jerk reaction. It's not as if it's like putting your arm up for offside or when, when players raise both hands before they take a corner, which mm-hmm. I still, <laughs> I've been watching this game a long time and I still don't 100% understand what that means. Oh, I have an idea. It can mean different things, I think. But yeah. anyway, that, that's, that's all the explanation of why they say away. And I mm-hmm. think as to why there isn't another command they could give, I think it's just, heat, it's a heat of the moment simplicity thing. You can't be, you know, dictating too many things. In that situation, the most important thing when an area ball coming, is coming in, the most important thing is to get that away without it touching the ground or an opposition player. So away is the most natural thing to do. You're not going to say, a uh, short pass out to the right-hand yeah. side because that's a lot of words, for example. And, you know, or, or maybe there is, a, there is a school of thought. If you're watching Germany against Spain, Manuel Neuer might have shouted, uh, stay away from attackers and give them free headers so they can score loads of goals. <laughs> maybe that was what he was shouting and you shouldn't do that. You should just shout away instead. That would be my advice. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, first of all, I agree entirely with what you said. It's a key point to say that it's a command. He's telling them to get it away. Sometimes you might hear, like, time, if they really do have, like, let's say it's a horribly taken short corner and it goes right to a defender. You might hear them say, like, time, time, time. But aside from that, they're trying to, as clearly as possible, convey, I'm not getting this, you need to. And if you think about then alternatives, like, there are some you could certainly go with, and I'm sure there are in other languages, but, like, all of them could be problematic because if you're saying like get it out if you simplify that one to just like out well that could mean the goalkeeper is screaming the ball's out of bounds and maybe Mm. somebody stops to look and see like wait is the ball out is there a flag up and then you lose concentration so i think it's about really effectively communicating what you need in of like as efficient efficient of a manner as possible and i think that's what away does it's telling them get the ball away in a very short order i'm not sure what else really there could be like i thought about out i thought about clear like that could be one but you're still sort of just saying the same thing in the end and i think also like get it away or away Mm -hmm. it has a psychological effect on the attackers as well because it because it is a command. It lets you know that like the defenders are in command of their own area. I think there's a psychological element to it. It's a like, negative reinforcement mm-hmm. of their attacking objective. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think it does. And then I also think that for people who like haven't played as much soccer, uh, if, if you go up for a header and you shout for it by saying, like, mine or my ball, you're going to get yelled at by your coach at least early on because everybody is my. Like, like that doesn't really do it. So I played <laughs> soccer with a guy who would win every header. His name was Rob, and you knew he was going to win it because you would, you would hear somebody screaming, Rob's ball, when he would come through to win it. And, like, you also have to have that level of specificity because otherwise it could be anybody's ball. So I think that's why you're going to hear, like, keeper, you're going to hear away, maybe you'll hear time. But it's very sort of simplified commands to communicate what needs to be done as quickly as the goalkeeper can. Can I use an archery analogy? I, I mean, obviously. It's the <laughs> obvious analogy to make, Ryan. So when I was younger, this is an embarrassing admission, but I used to do archery quite a lot. Uh, for, for several years and if uh it, when you were shooting on on the range uh if there was ever like someone walked on or someone was behind the targets or something someone shouts loose mm-hmm. and that means you loosen your bow and you point down you don't shoot 
Uh, and that was, you know, a very effective command. It's one syllable. It's shouted quickly. Everyone knows what it means. If it was, stop shooting your bow, there's someone's over there. There's, there's confusion. There's one <laughs> universal word, which means yeah. you don't yeah. shoot. So I think away has that same status. How old were you when you took archery lessons? Uh, <laughs> this is, a, I reckon I was from about 10 till 12 or 13. I got quite good at it. Can I ask you one more follow-up question? Sure. If I were describing your upbringing via the Spice Girls, would you be posh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling. Well, Ryan... Uh, you've, you've had a nice insight to my terribly middle-class upbringing there with my <laughs> archery hobby. It reminded me of... Uh, Michael Che had a joke on SNL about like like lacrosse just being the domain of of, of rich white people, and that is not <laughs> untrue. So I feel like archery is is probably in there as well. Uh, well, Ryan thinks fondly back on his childhood shooting arrows and yelling loose, although ideally not yelling loose. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Let's talk about today's sponsor, Fubo, Fubo Fubo.tv. If you are sick of cable, uh, we are as well. Uh, I definitely am. That's why uh, we switched to Fubo. I switched to Fubo. For live sports, for news, for primetime TV. I've talked about that recently, that it was it was really nice to have all of the different news channels for their election coverage and then slowly sort of winnow that down to like networks that i thought were actually useful with Mm. soccer you don't have to really worry about that as much because they're all very good you have lots of different options for lots of different leagues you've got liga mekis in there major league soccer the premier league uh bundesliga in there too you've got national team games you've got tons of different options including be in sports which connects you to uh some spain uh some la liga games some turkish games even so you've got a ton of variety all for less than you would be paying for cable yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Fubo TV is the best uh, digital streaming service for the soccer. It has all the leagues you should for need. You add on add on a little bit of ESPN Plus and you're all sorted there, Tata. You're all sorted. Yeah. And it's just 50, $65 a month. It shocks me to be told that the av- average monthly cost of cable is over 200 bones. Yeah. And what I love about Fubo is that you know, it works across all your devices. Very easy to put it on your phone, on your iPad, on your on your computer. And I, I, I'd like to watch it um, with Apple TV or with, um, with my smart television. Television, not some crusty old cable box I'm yeah. renting that someone else had. Ew, gross. To, to, to your point, man, I gotta say, like, I will be watching a game, on, like, we'll use Roku for Fubo, uh, and I'll have it on, on the TV. And then if I'm gonna go, like, make dinner, or, or like, sometimes I'll even take the dogs for a walk and there's a game happening, and I'll be like, well, I'm just gonna switch to the app on my phone, and now I've got the game. I'm mm. not doing as, as good of a job with the dog walk. I'm not maybe being as diligent as I should be walking dogs in a city. But, like, you can, you have that level of, like, ease of switching from one to the other without having to pull your entire tv in the cord with you taylor the amount of times i've been watching a game and my better half says we have to go to target now so i take my take out my yep. phone and i say you're driving yep <laughs> happens a lot <laughs> 
I will probably not do that uh, for the drive to the hospital when when she's in labor. I won't don't be like, well, there's a don't game on right now, if you don't mind. Uh, but that aside, I am with you. Uh, and right now, Fubo TV is offering our listeners a free trial and 15% off their first month by going to FuboTV.com slash TSS. There are no contracts. You can cancel any time. There's no installation. You don't have to have cables, and they're not drilling holes in your house. No contracts, no installation. Just go to FuboTV.com slash TSS for 15% off your first month and a free trial. That's FuboTV.com slash TSS. Thank you to Fubo for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you as well to Indochino for sponsoring today's episode. To hear more about them, we have Paul Tenorio. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you to Indochino and to Paul Tenorio for sponsoring today's episode. I guess Indochino for sponsoring Paul Tenorio for doing some lovely ad reading. Ryan, two more questions to go. Would you? Why don't you ask the next one? Nathan Clark, mm-hmm. Nathan Clark asks us how, if at all, will the new uh, will the new goalkeeping rules during penalties affect the way in which players like Bruno Fernandes and Jorginho take their penalty kicks? You know the old hop, skip, and a jump. Also, could you better explain these rules? My understanding, says Nathan, is that keepers are not allowed to move off their line until the ball is kicked. Is this correct? Mm-hmm. I'll take the second part first, and I'll say the rule has been adjusted a little bit from last season to this. Uh, the It basically used to be, if we all remember, that it was like if your foot is off, the, both feet are off the line, if you're a goalkeeper, the penalty is retaken and it's a yellow card. They've relaxed mm-hmm. it a bit more. Now, uh, if you're, if both feet are off the line, it is still going to be retaken, but it is not a yellow card. You get a warning first. Eventually you'll get a yellow. Uh, if the ball hits the post or if the shooter misses entirely and the goalkeeper was off their line, then it's not automatically retaken unless it was like clearly a distracting aspect of things. But basically, if they're off their line and the shot is saved, it's getting retaken. If they stay on their line and the shot is saved, then that's just how it went down. So to the, that's, I think, a, a sort of quick summary of the second part of the question. I hope that explains that. What do you think about the impact it could have on technique? Um, I'm not convinced it does have a great deal of impact on technique because, after all, goalkeepers 
shouldn't really be coming off their line at any point anyway. And that's been the case for a long, <laughs> you know, always. Mm-hmm. And I'm old enough to remember when you couldn't even have lateral movement. Do you remember, Tete, when I think it was the late 90s, it was a charity shield game with Man United and Peter Schmeichel was dancing all along the line, moving uh, side to side laterally. And we were all watching this going, what? What is he doing? And it was this new rule that you could move laterally along the line. So that, I, man, that I was, don't remember the time when you couldn't. No. Wow, that's crazy. I, that I, I think he, except in every 90s soccer movie, the goalkeeper is always stationary on their line. So yes, that's when it works out. <laughs> I believe, I, I wish I knew the date offhand, but it was sort of the late 90s. And I, mm-hmm. remember, I specifically remember that Charity Shield game which preceded the season and lots of people, who, who, there wasn't really the internet around to tell you what was happening. <laughs> but you had to rely on the commentators. But uh, it was incidentally the 1988 FA Cup final in which Wimbledon beat Liverpool. Uh, Dave Besant, the Wimbledon goalkeeper, saved a penalty. Very famously saved a John Aldridge penalty in that game. And there was accusations that he moved laterally by an inch or two as Aldridge was taking his run up. And that was very controversial. Obviously wouldn't be controversial after that 90s uh, rule change. But more specifically to this change uh, affecting the way players like Bruno and Jorginho take their penalty kicks, I don't think so because they're techniques and most modern penalty taking techniques are predicated on movement lateral movement aren't they because you're mm-hmm. not really accounting for the fact that of the keeper coming forward or not that because that's that's the keeper making himself bigger which could affect any kind of penalty taking technique am i am i on the right lines there yeah i think so is that the so end of your answer? That's <laughs> I don't, want, that's I don't want to interject too quickly. I mean, yeah, that's essentially what I have yeah. to say about that. But I could talk a little bit about the, the, the techniques and how, how keepers mm. are dealing with them, if you like. But I'll, I'll let you jump in. Yeah, I, I was going to say, if anything, I think it makes that style of taking more appealing because I think goalkeepers still very much would like to hop off of their line. I think it's it's not even necessarily an active competitive advantage. I don't think it's a thing they necessarily do intentionally to, to game the system, I think it's just that if you're up on your toes, you know that shot's coming. I think it's a natural inclination to hop forward, to like just try to get closer to the ball to close down that angle a little bit. Mm. And I think that sort of run up and the hop, it, it can either pull them off and then you know that you're going to get to retake it or it sort of freezes them because they know they don't want to move. So they're just trying to kind of sit there and see what you do. And I think it can it can actually help. I, I still don't know how people do that as efficiently and effectively as they do, because I feel like I would inevitably trip and fall or kick the ball wide. It seems like the people who do that have the pattern down to be able to put it exactly where they need to. Um, the other thing would be that, uh, just to clarify, with the run-up, the run-up has to be like a, I think you have to be continuously in motion. You can stop, I think, or you can very much slow down in your run-up. You absolutely cannot stop as yeah. you're striking the ball. So that would be the other thing there is like it allows you to stay in motion, but buys you some time to evaluate what the goalkeeper is doing. And then as you come down, you're passing it to one corner or the other. So I think in some ways the rule change benefits the taker who does try little different things even if that's not always my favorite thing for them to do yeah for sure and you've you've touched on something i was going to touch on there that i think the hop skip and jump technique is an evolution of stopping your run which was you know sort of curtailed quite a bit Mm -hmm. uh this is this is the new method of deception this is the new method of a taker trying to fool the goalkeeper so uh if you look on the athletic carl anker's got a very good article about this where he focuses on um on bruno fernandez and Jorginho and their technique and how um it's 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 got two functions that that jump it's an extra moment where they can watch the keeper and specifically his knees and his feet to see which way they're going to move and also it disguises their non-taking foot 
so the keeper has a harder huh. time figuring out what way the ball is going to go. And apparently this technique is only good for if you put it in the left or right corner, not if you Joseph Martinez it uh, up over the bar. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> and so I think this is actually a really, really difficult Techniques. It's much more mm-hmm. difficult than it looks, I would say, because not only are you getting the biomechanics of that jump and timing it right, the whole idea of it is to make your judgment midair while you're assessing what the keeper is doing. So not only are you trying to get that movement right, but you're trying to midair make a decision where you're going to put it. And that is very, very difficult to do and we know that the best penalty takers out there are penalty takers who do make that last second decision based on what the goalkeeper was doing and there's there's one there's a couple of different ways that that's done as well not just a hop skip and a jump I think one of the kings of modern kings of penalties is Eden Azar who you know this guy who doesn't look at the ball doesn't he's only looking at the keeper to find out where he's going and at the very last millisecond he can change the direction I think Raul Jimenez is the same actually in that he doesn't look at the ball and it really <laughs> messes up the keeper, basically. Uh, so there's there's, there's different, different ways of doing it, but the hop's given a jump. It may look silly, but it does have some intricate functions. Poor goalkeepers. Poor, poor goalkeepers. Well, uh, actually, you say poor goalkeepers, but there's something else that was revealed in this athletic article. It was about um, it was talking about Matt Letizia of Southampton, Southampton legend, who he scored all of his career penalties, I think, except his last one. And it was against Nottingham Forest, Mark Crossley. I'm loving the amount of 90s references I'm making so far in this answer. But um, Mark Crossley did something that fooled Letizia because Letizia was one of these players who would make the decision at the last second where he was going to put it. He would either you know put it to the right or he would round his foot at the very last minute to put it to the left, the keeper's right. And what Mark Crossley did that day is he did a shimmy. He started going one way and immediately jumped the other way. And I've just moved away from my mic because I was doing it myself. I'm sorry <laughs> if I went quiet to that. But, <laughs> um, but uh, he, so he fooled the Tizier doing that. And I think that is what goalkeepers are now going to do. That is the way to sort of fool an attacker. If you, if you know Bruno Fernandes is coming and doing his hop, skip and jump, Start going one way and go the other. If you can do it that rapidly while his jump is happening, that's the antidote, in my opinion. All right. Man, Ryan, I like that answer. Woo! Bring the big guns. All right, let's see, <laughs> let's see what you have for our final question, unless you have anything else to say about uh, penalties and goalkeepers and techniques. Uh, just that I find it the most nerve-wracking thing in the world in rec soccer when you're taking a penalty. Yeah, All the pressure's on it. you. It's so I hard. Hate t- I hate taking penalties so much. <laughs> I think only once in my life have I ever actively been like i am taking this penalty and it's when i think in high school the girls soccer team was watching us play and i earned a penalty and i was like well now i'm gonna score this one but outside of that one i don't think i've ever actively wanted to take one ever tate in high school did you have Mm -hmm. a giant beard i had i had a like stubbly beard i shaved every single day because i was my my dad in addition to being a judge is also a major in the army both of my grandfathers are colonels in the army so i grew up in a fairly militant family not militant but military leaning family so no it, i was clean shaven until uh basically when we got back from uh the middle east and then i could like grow a big beard i did uh, when we were in turkey we had to look western so uh like the school that i was teaching at made us uh or wanted us to look secular so i couldn't have facial hair then i had like the five o'clock shadow miami vice beard for a very long time which i've had since i was yeah like 15 or 16 you had such an interesting life. I wish I could learn more about it. <laughs> hey, man, keep doing shows. You'll, you'll, you'll hear more and more. Uh, but until then, 
for now. We've got one more question. Derek Dickinson, what are your favorite apps for scores, tactics, lineups, and stats that can be different for each uh, or use multiple, uh, but it's kind of whatever you want it to be? I've got a couple. I'm not, I will admit, like the biggest app person when it comes to soccer. We used to do like the Stat Zone app. That was the best one ever. But then I think that got you to pay for it, and I think they were limited in the games they were covering. So since then, I use a couple different ones. Do you have any in particular that you will vouch for? Yeah. Um, when I first moved here, I used the Sky Sports app, which is what everybody in the UK uses. It's sort of the, there's no, well, there wasn't any real competitor to it. And then I soon found out I couldn't use that here because it's not in the app store. So FOTMOB, is that how you say it? Yeah. FOTMOB, yeah, whatever it is, yeah. Fotmob. That's my go-to for my scores on the go. And it's wonderful when Fotmob gives you notifications ahead of your Peacock stream, as it is wont to do. (laughs) Do you use that for all of those, though? Do you use it for scores and tactics? Or for lineups, I guess? Tactics is kind of hard to find an app for. So I'm, I very much live on my laptop. I know a lot of people mm-hmm. do things on their phones. I'm, I'm a laptop all-the-time all kind of guy. So my two big go-tos, FOTMOB is one, when I'm on the move, Taylor, mm-hmm. when I'm on the move, when I'm at Target with the wife, that's when uh, FOTMOB, <laughs> FOTMOB comes out. Um, my two main ones are Soccer Base and Who Scored. Uh, soccer, okay. soccer, way, so, soccer Way, sorry, Soccer Base I used to use. Soccer okay. Way is my, yeah. is my, I say is my number one Agreed. that's the best one for researching teams like looking at you know head-to-heads and stuff and if you want to have a little bet if that is legal in your state that i think it's really good for looking at form and stuff like that looking at patterns but i also really liked who scored um when you're researching individual player data and player rankings and things like that it's really good for that and also it's it, it's a nice interface and it, it you know it's good for the formations and stuff so Soccer weight, number one, who scored when I want to de- delve a little deeper into the stats, particularly sort of possession and individual player data stats. That's where I stand. Uh, I'm with you on Soccer Way. Uh, they, they do have an app. It is pretty much a like, clone of what the desktop looks like. Uh, but I think it's great. Yeah, for form, as you mentioned, it's an easy place to go to find uh, like how many games or minutes a player has played, when they scored. If they did, then you can click and see like what game they scored in, and mm-hmm. and it kind of gives you lots of different little insights. But then it also usually will have starting lineups for you and a rough formation guide, so you can see what they were doing or how it might change from game to game. Whenever we do our World Cup previews, for example, that is the site I will use to pull Egypt's last seven games, and I'll look at the lineup, and you can kind of come away from that thinking. Six of the seven, they were playing in a 4-3-3, uh, and in five of those seven, it was the same, like, ten players. Like, it gives you a really clear idea of who is likely to play. It's an easy way to get that sort of information. So I'm with you for sure on Soccer Way. And then the other other one that I think is really good, obviously for MLS, but also for the U.S. Men's National Team, is just the MLS the MLS app, MLS Soccer yeah. app. Um because you're going to get the formations, you're going to get highlights and things like that, but you can also then get the advanced stats or some of the box score breakdowns. And then with the U.S. national team, they always are really good for having the lineup and having the formation that they think it will be, but then adjusting it, not necessarily as the game goes on, but like if they think it's going to be a 4-2-3-1, and then the U.S. comes out in a back three, really quickly they will adjust it. Like You, yeah. you can sort of rely on them to tell you what the U.S. is actually doing. It's why I, I did not think it was going to be Sebastian Legette as the false nine in that first game against Wales. And they had him there, and I was like, well, I guess it is going to be then. Like, that's kind of the level of trust I have in them. 
I would have an addendum there. I'd agree with MLS. If you're looking at MLS stats, the MLS website is better than uh, Sokoway, who scored and all those. I would yeah. definitely agree with that. And one other I do actually use when I'm researching uh, form is 11versus11.com. I don't know if you use that, but uh, you know. basically I do a lot of stuff and like when I'm doing betting content and, and things like that. It's really good because it, it, it's got a long history of, 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 of head-to-head and form, basically. So that's another one to use. I'm, I'm, I'm searching that right now, 11versus11football.com. 11 versus 11.com, 11v11.com, sorry. Oh, okay. Oh, now I see. Now I see what's happened here. All right. Well, I will check that one out. I encourage other people to check out the ones we've mentioned, but also let us know if there are some that they think are better, especially if there are ones that do a good job of like sort of giving you tactics-y things, because that's a really hard thing to do, I think, in app form and to do really quickly uh, during or after the game. It tends to be like a longer form thing a couple days later, in my experience. But if anybody has some ideas, I welcome them. But for now, I hope that we've done a good good enough job of answering everyone's listener questions. We've knocked out six today. We talked a little bit about the plans for this weekend. Ryan, uh, I think it has been lovely. So I will just say, in the end, thank you, as always, for answering thank some listener questions always, and it's being been- here with me. Sorry, Tato, I jumped all over your <laughs> outro there. But I, I'm not, not done yet, Ryan. I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. I've got one more thing I want to cover. Please. You mentioned for a second, I said I didn't know what both hands up at the corner meant. Explain. Mm-hmm. Wait, what? You said, when, when I said, uh, when we're talking about mm-hmm. the uh, goalkeeper and the away and the keepers, I said, I don't know what it means when the c- corner taker puts two hands up before right. he delivers the corner. Did you have a theory? I do. Oh, yeah, I do. So I thought you were saying... Do I want to explain why I think you don't have a theory? I was explain confused. There. <laughs> explain no, me. I mean, what it was always always was when I was playing was that it signals where the ball's going to go. So if you have like left hand in the air, it means near post. Right hand in the air means far post. Both hands could mean like you're driving it towards the penalty spot. But it See, can be a way to kind of call your play. Basically, I'm not saying they always do that. Sometimes it's just maybe like. A very obvious, like both hands in the air is something you cannot miss. It might tell your runners, okay, like start your runs now because my hands are up. And as they drop, that can be the signal. That's when you start your run. The ball is about to be delivered. So they're not banking on when you start to just approach the ball. So I think it can be calling the play, but also initiating the play at the same time. See, that's my, that was also my understanding, Tay but I found in practice it doesn't. Mm-hmm work out like that maybe that's just corner takers not having the best aim and it's always confused me because like it's certainly in a professional game you see both hands up more than one or, or the other mm-hmm. and it always seems like it doesn't always correlate to where the corner lands so that's what that's what's always confused me yeah so I, I think then fundamentally it just becomes like it's an easy way to tell if you've got your your four guys in a line waiting to make their various runs that they've all agreed upon it tells them when to start those runs at a very basic level ah uh. The more you know. Or it's just, you know, maybe the corner corner kick taker wants more attention on them, so they want to put both hands in the air to make sure the camera finds them. It's a a (laughs) pre-celebration. Arms are already up. (laughs) I like that. I like that. Confidence. Uh, Well, I hope I didn't, like, mansplain that one too much to you, since you seem to already know some of it, or most (laughs) of it. But but I, I appreciate your inquisitive mind, Ryan. Uh, corner takers do the darndest things that's all we know <laughs> <laughs> alright buddy well thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today always a pleasure Tay Tay never a chore and listeners thank you all for listening uh, I will have a show with George Horatio tomorrow I think there's going to be an episode of Allocation Disorder I will say that Sam Stashkel called me in the middle of our recording which is 
Always an interesting sign on the day that they usually record. We'll see how that goes. Uh, and then Ryan and Graham will be back Monday, Woo. as will uh, Joe. And then Ryan will rotate a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I, I feel like the show is in very good hands. And Joe is still doing Soccer 101. He did uh, an episode today that's out about the U.S. Open Cup uh, and why maybe it's not as important as it should be or could be. Uh, so be sure to listen to that. Be sure to listen to all that content. And thank you all for always listening to all of the content. 